You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Welcome again. We are making our way through Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, so it should be easy to find. So everyone should have a Bible. Uh, we're going to uh, look at these uh, final words. If, uh, if you don't have a Bible, just wave your hand. Uh, Bill or David can get a, get a Bible to you. Uh, the, the very end of uh, Malachi, Malachi 3, verse 13, that's what we're going to look at. And for little theologians, um, I've loved your artwork over the course of these uh, debates that the people have with God, right? Remember, they're looking up to God, they're shouting at God, uh, arguing with Him. But for this morning, little theologians, I want you to draw a picture of a safe. Okay, you'll understand why later. Just draw a picture of a safe. Okay, you know, like knobs and whatnot, a vault or something like that. Uh, because it's a, that's an important picture for this sermon. The safe is an example of what's bad. Not an example of what's good, of what's bad. But I want you to draw a picture of a safe, and if you catch it, I want you to write why that's bad. Why is the safe image uh, a bad one. So that's uh, that's the task for uh, little theologians. The sermon outline is there in the tail end of your worship bulletin. Malachi three thirteen is uh, is where we'll begin. Let me uh, let me lead us in prayer to God before we uh, before we read the passage. Please pray with me. God, thank you for your word, for revealing yourself, for making yourself known. Father, would you help us to understand it? Would you help me to preach it? Would you help us to live it? Holy Spirit, we need you. Glorify Jesus Christ by this word in us. Thank you, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So Malachi 3, beginning at verse 13 to the end. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping His charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. 
Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is the word of our Lord. And this is the uh, the last debate that we get to witness uh, that Malachi's audience uh, brings to God. There have been five debates that have gone before this one. And here, Malachi's audience gather together to make one last debate. They hope the last debate to finally silence God. This really is their final stand, their final debate against God in which the people of Jerusalem, rather than grow weary rather than be ashamed, rather than become repentant, they are going to fight to the last. And we'd be rather naive, I think, if we thought that this was uncommon. The Bible tells us that human beings, even though they were created with God's special image for God's special service, ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, their blood runs with rebellion. The tragic irony is that some people will stand up to God all the way to the bitter end, never surrendering, never admitting defeat. And really, that's a bit of the picture that we have in this, the last and final debate that these people of Jerusalem uh, make to God. The great American poet Robert Lowell grew up in Boston before World War II, and he recalls how our country used to commemorate a war by building uh, statues, uh, building monuments. But Robert Lowell says now everything is about advertising, and he's saying this in 1960. He writes a poem in which he walks through uh, Boston Common, and he writes this. He says, there are no statues for the last war here. On Boyston Street, a commercial photograph shows Hiroshima boiling over a Mossler safe, the rock of ages that survived the blast. Now, that might be a rather obscure poetic illusion unless you understand that he's actually commenting on a well-known advertising poster that was produced by the Mossler Safe and Lock Company. Uh, It's a poster in which there's a picture of one of their uh, safes, and then in the background is the towering plume of the blast that destroyed Hiroshima. And Robert Lowell, who's a poet, is heartbroken that a tragic event in which 350,000 people lost their lives could actually be transformed into a marketing ploy for the Mosler Safe and Lock Company. When American soldiers went through the rubble of Hiroshima, they discovered a Mosler vault in the belly of a bank. The bank actually was completely gone, but the vault was still there. And the Mossler Safe Company capitalized on this discovery, claiming to make the most indestructible safes in the world. And I think about that indestructibility of a Mossler Safe when I read the first verse of our passage. God says that your words have been hard against me. Hard words girded words, words that have protected people and meant to injure God. Your words have been hard against me. 
How secure the people of Jerusalem feel as they argue with God. They're so convinced that they're right. No matter how thoroughly God defends Himself, even with the force of an atomic explosion, they know that they are right and He is the one who's wrong. Remember, Judea is just a 600-square-mile plot of land with some 150,000 people. They are a mere pinprick in the largest empire of the world, the Persian Empire, and yet they are so confident, they are so arrogant that they feel that they are safe even before God. They are hard against Him indeed. But Malachi continues to preach and preach and preach. And what happens in this sermon is that God reveals that there are actually only two kinds of people. There are people who are hard against Him, who fashion for themselves a safe or a vault of human argument and human resistance against Him. And there are people who actually fear Him, who stand naked and exposed before Him. God just sees these two kinds of people. And we get to this sixth debate And finally, we begin to learn more about that second kind of person. Let me tell you what I mean. In our first two verses, I'd like for us to notice that Malachi is describing the cultural tone of his world. This is a part of what a prophet actually does. A prophet is supposed to assess the cultural and philosophical setting of his times. And Malachi says that the people in his world are staunchly set against God. These people will use the name of God. They'll talk about the stories of God from the past. And they'll even participate in ceremonies about God, but they they hate Him. They hate Him. And all they're doing is showing a hard arrogance against Him. Their reply to his revelation in the prophet Malachi is the cold, unmovable metal of a safe. As Malachi preaches the gospel and preaches the gospel and preaches the gospel, they remain unimpressed. And when you look at verse 14, and when you hear the people, hear the people say this, it is vain to serve God. Who do you suppose they're speaking to? Look at verse 14. You say it is vain to serve God. Who are they speaking to when they say that it is vain to serve God? Are they saying this to God? That is, are they saying, God, we believe that it's vain to serve you. Or are they saying this outwardly, publicly, so that others might hear, that they might say to others, isn't it vain to serve God? Wouldn't you agree? Now, it's probably both. They're speaking to God, but they're also speaking to their cultural setting. And likely these people are are actually extremely comfortable mocking God to His face and in public. They evangelize their opposition to God without worrying much about who hears them, not even if God Himself hears them. In fact, they're daring God to hear them mock Him in public. They say to others that to serve God in any way, even to speak favorably about Him is sheer vanity. That's the word that they use, vanity. It's it's worthless to do this. It's futile. It's a waste of time. And that's just verse 14. But they also say that there is no profit. Literally, there's no benefit to be had to have exclusive loyalty to God or to be overly concerned about what pleases Him or what displeases Him. I think that's what verse 14 is about. The word mourning is strange there. 
But these people are so hard that they're saying to others that you are foolish to have exclusive loyalty to God to such a degree that you care about what pleases Him or what He finds displeasing. And then verse 15 tells us that they believe that anyone who agrees with them, well, those are actually the righteous ones, the ones who are truly blessed. And as if to offer incontrovertible proof, they go on to say that all of the people who have exactly the same opinion as them, those are the people who can prove that they're on the right side because they're wealthy, they're happy, they're precisely the kind of people you want to be seen with. It makes no sense to follow God at all. And the proof is look at all of the success and wealth that we have and our friends have as a result of not following God. That's Malachi's audience, and I want us to begin to understand the gravity of his situation. His, his hearers, they're not, they're not simply debating God. They're actually defending and evangelizing a flavor of godlessness. Theirs is a grassroots effort that has gone viral because it is actually a virus, the nucleic acid molecule of rebellion against God that multiplies from the sin of Adam to the grassroots gathering of Genesis chapter 11 when all of the people gather together to build themselves a massive fortress, a tower reaching to the sky for the name of God? No, for the name of themselves in order to proclaim not God's name, but the name of a man-made religion. And that Tower of Babel is what stands before Malachi as he preaches and preaches and preaches. And that tower stands before the church today as she holds out the very same gospel message. And many of us who are Christians actually feel this tower today. We sense the calm, even the happiness with which people abuse the name of our Holy Father. They openly hate Him. They openly laugh at Him. They openly hate His church. And they openly laugh at His church. And nobody is likely to complain. This could go on forever and ever. When will this change? It seems like the walls of the safe are impenetrable to God and impenetrable to His church. And Malachi preaches... And he preaches. He preaches to a people who say to God, prove that you love me. And Malachi vindicates God through the work of the Holy Spirit. And what is the response of the people? It's the second debate. And they debate against God a second time. And God validates Himself in the ministry of Malachi through the Holy Spirit. And what's their response? Their response is the third debate. And then the fourth debate. And then the fifth debate. And then we come in our passage to verse 16, and everyone here should highlight it, mark it. It's very important. Because here's a man who preaches the gospel of grace. And he preaches, and he preaches. And he feels that tower, and you feel that tower. And the safe builders refuse to listen. They fortify the safe and trust in themselves. But in verse 16, something remarkable happens, almost more than words can tell. In this atmosphere of hatred towards God, a conversation, perhaps a small conversation, breaks out. Verse 16 says that then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. That hasn't happened before in Malachi's preaching ministry, not as far as what we've been told. 
Those who feared the Lord, they spoke with one another. You know, perhaps it was one person who happened to meet with another after a sermon. And they spoke about something unrelated, perhaps even tangential, maybe about work, maybe about politics, probably not a football game, but it could have been some athletic analogy. And they both, as they were talking, began to sense that the two of them had the same odd sensation about the preaching ministry of Malachi. His words seemed to do something to them personally, but it seems as though those words did something to someone else as well. Maybe it was surprising when this happened. Perhaps it was something new or fresh about God's love that they heard Malachi preach about. Or maybe it was something about God's past faithfulness that they hadn't considered correctly. Or maybe it's something about God's unchanging promises and their hope and wish that those promises would come true. Maybe both of these two individuals uh, confess the same warmth of heart that John Wesley remembered experiencing as he heard the gospel preached, the gospel message filtering out of a church onto the streets of London and his hearts warmed. Maybe these two people had that very experience and they're surprised to find one another. Maybe it was an older man or woman who listened to Malachi and his preaching ministry and what he talked about made a reminder to them of the reason they or their parents labored so long and hard to build that temple some 40 years ago. Or maybe it was a younger person listening to Malachi preach and over time they're led to see that God must be, oh, I hope that he must be greater than this up-and-coming Persian culture. If I'm honest, I often wonder how it is that God rarely enters into our own normal conversations, even as Christians. It's provocative that even in Christian homes, there is alarmingly little discussion about God or about Scripture, about His greatness, about new glimpses of Him that day. I'm not talking about Bible study or devotional reading, but a natural occasion in which a truth about God from Scripture flows into a conversation just as naturally, just as seamlessly as a conversation about a TV program or a YouTube video or about an event that day or about a political figure. Why shouldn't it happen that in Christian homes, the words or acts of God would seamlessly enfold themselves into a conversation in an organic way? It appears that after the preaching of Malachi, there was a small chink in the armor of at least a few people, and they got together and they talked about something. The great united front, the tower against God, experiences this miniature failure, as it were. At least two people begin to doubt this man-made religion. It's as if a slight gap between the metal plates of a Mossler safe expose a tiny mistake made by an ordinarily gifted welder. And in that tiny fissure, perhaps naked to the visible eye, the gospel of grace penetrates the hearts of two people and they find each other and they speak with one another. Well, Malachi notices this, and a preacher doesn't always get to notice this, but Malachi, he does. And verse 16 says that a book of remembrance was written, which is rather perplexing until you consider how the average person of the 5th century B.C. would understand this phrase, a book 
of remembrance. During Malachi's day, a book of remembrance was a technical expression for a catalog, as it were, of historically significant people and events that must never be forgotten. A nation needs to remember her heroes. Everyone in Malachi's audience would have understood that, practically speaking, a nation needs to know which families ought to be continually honored because of their ancestors. And more importantly, the morale and longevity of a nation are enhanced by remembering past greatnesses. Leaders of the present will encourage and motivate the people that surely the greatness of the past is indicative of the greatness of the future. As such, archaeologists reconstruct societies in a top-down fashion because these annals, these books of remembrance, contain exploits of important people. This is the kind of material that archaeologists discover. It's the kind of material that's written in its most permanent form that's treated in a special way. Political and military histories then, as today, rarely record the lives of insignificant people, only the significant ones. And as we look in world history, what do we learn about from the archaeologists? The lives of those who are publicly significant. They're kept in the annals and the histories in the books of remembrances of old civilizations. But look who gets their name written in God's own book of remembrance. Those who fear the Lord and who esteem His name. We should understand that for Malachi's audience, this would be a very small number of people. This would not be a multi-volume book, would it? They may or may not be included in the world's book of remembrance, but God actually doesn't seem to care. What makes a man a man, what makes a woman a woman is this, that they worship him and revere his name. This means that God doesn't have an analogical way of viewing the people of the world as if He loved some people more than others and that He ranks them on the scale from enemy to acquaintance to friend to best friend to wife. A human being has either the status of belief or the status of unbelief. His saving love is total. His saving love is complete. And one either has it or one does not. A human being is known by God in this way. And in the great timeline of God's story of redemption, we understand that love based upon a person's regard for Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, the one and only mediator between God and man. To fear God and to esteem His name is to trust not in the hard vault of a man-made religion, but the perfect removal of punishment that comes through His Son. According to Malachi, who's very in tune with his culture and also our culture, there's a challenging reality here. And let me tell you what that is. In our Christian experience, just living the Christian life under the shadow of the Tower of Babel, we don't always feel as though we are in God's book of remembrance. What I mean by that is Jesus uh, will call us things, say things about us that we don't always feel. God looks at me in verse 17 and he calls me mine. He says that about John Jones, mine. And he looks at me in verse 17 and he calls me my treasured possession. But I don't always feel like I'm his. I don't always feel like I'm his possession. Far be it his treasured possession. 
Sometimes, uh, not only this, I don't even feel really distinct from the rest of the world. Sometimes my righteousness will stand out, but sometimes the righteousness of my unbelieving neighbor actually stands out above my own. And sometimes I'm shocked at how much I enjoy unrighteousness more than righteousness. My distinction from the world very often seems rather muted. This is what's behind Malachi mentioning in verse 18 of a future distinction. Do you see that in verse 18? A future distinction between the people of God and the people of the world. There was a time in the past when the distinction seemed to Malachi's audience to be less muted There was an earthly king, a King David, a King Solomon. There was a nation. There was a religious life that was renowned and known by others. There was a temple, and there was seemingly a pure ethnicity. But all of that is blunted now in this seemingly insignificant nation under Persian rule. And even those who have come together, united in this fear of God and this reverence for His name, they still don't feel like they're a treasured possession of the God of the cosmos. And Malachi preaches a message of hope to Christians like that, that there will come a time on the great day when Jesus returns and he himself will announce the distinction between the two kinds of people in the world. There are those who worship Christ and those who do not. No ethic or devotion or expectation or even hopefulness is going to be honored by this Christ, for every judgment of God's will have to do with the worship of his Son. And as such, Malachi 4.2 is written for those who don't feel treasured, who don't feel distinct you will one day never feel otherwise. You will one day never feel otherwise. You will know that you are perfectly treasured by Him. You will know that you are eternally distinct from the rest of the world because of Him. And you will go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now let's not forget the last two verses. There's something here that's important because there's something that actually happens before that great day, before that great day, before the second coming of our Lord. And Malachi expects this to be the comfort that assures those who fear God for the remainder of their earthly days. Please remember that Malachi is the last author of the Old Testament. And also remember that there are nearly 400 years between the death of Malachi and the birth of John the Baptist. A lot of people don't know that. 400 years between the death of Malachi and the birth of John the Baptist. But Malachi offers verses 4 and 5 to tell the people something very important about making sense of their lives in the present. There's a hopefulness about the second coming of Jesus, to be sure. But there's something here in this life that's important to Malachi as he preaches. And he wants them to take this into their daily life. He wants them to trust this as they wait for that expected John the Baptist. Verse 4 takes them back in memory, not to the deliverance from Egypt. Think about that. Those of you who know the stories of the Bible know that the Exodus is a very important event in the history of the Hebrew people. But verse 4 takes them back not to the Exodus, but to rather what the Exodus points them to. They were delivered out of Egypt so that they might serve God at Mount Sinai, that they might worship God. And that's what verse 4 takes the people back to. His audience, those people who have gathered together as Malachi has preached, and they fear the Lord, they worship Him, they esteem His name, they're a small body, and they may 
may not feel as though they're God's treasured possession, but Malachi says to them, wait, look back at Mount Mount Sinai. Look back. Three months after they left Egypt, God takes them to Mount Sinai where He reveals His holy character, where He reveals His holy will, but He also reveals their utter unholiness and their need for a sacrifice, their need for atonement. In the Ten Commandments itself, God tells the people what kind of God He is and what kind of people they are to be. And the people who follow these commandments, these are His people. These are His treasured possession. And as every Hebrew man, woman, and child would know, these people do not meet that criteria. How do they know that they don't meet that criteria? Just from personal life, but also in the story of Scripture. Do you know what happened just as God gave to Moses the Ten Commandments? Immediately after, what does God give to Moses? Instructions for an altar. Isn't that a killjoy? Instructions for an altar immediately after the revelation of God's holy character in the Ten Commandments. Right after, he tells Moses to build an altar. That's glorious. That is beautiful. Don't skip that. The beginning of the Ten Commandments is a reminder of what God did for the people in Egypt, how He delivered them and brought them to this mountain. Then there's the contents of the Ten Commandments, and then He says, go build an altar, because you do not meet my holy expectations, but there is someone who will meet my holy expectations, and you're to look for that someone in the blood of the sacrifice. It's that blood that goes on the altar God never gives the people a law without giving giving them the provision for that law. And from that moment on, they are to expect the Messiah. He will be the one who purifies the ministry of the Levites. And John the Baptist will be the one who points him out. So you see, Malachi has the people in, in their present life looking backward, but also looking forward, because Malachi has the people in verse 5 look forward to eagerly expect John the Baptist, who will point to the perfect and final sacrifice. This one will be sufficient enough even to turn away God's utter destruction. You see that in verse 5. His utter destru- even his utter destruction will be turned away. Verse 6. This is the one that can do that. And John the Baptist is going to point them out. So will the people from the generation of Malachi onward, 400 years, will they actually do this? Do you think they're actually going to, oh, I understand what you're saying, Malachi. I am to look backward and I'm going to see my need for Christ and I'm going to look forward and connect those dots to see God's perfect redemption provided for me in the Messiah. Of course no one is going to do that, right? That's absolutely wrong. They do do that. Some did. And when Jesus was born, there indeed were people like Anna and Simeon, even the wise men from the far reaches of the Persian Empire, who did look for the Messiah. This is the hopefulness of Malachi's preaching ministry through the six debates of the people. This is his hopefulness for them. Look backward and look forward. Anticipate that God will make himself known even more clearly than he has already. But some, of course... The majority, it's always the majority, did not fear God. They did not esteem His name. They did not connect the ministry of Moses to the ministry of Jesus. Instead, they placed all of their efforts in replacing the ministry of Moses and the ministry of Jesus. They put all of their efforts in building a safe, a vault. 
They fabricated a philosophical system that elevated self to such a degree that they are certain that not a spark of atomic radiation will ever reach them. The Mossler Safe and Lock Company will keep them safe. You know, you would have never heard of that company had I not brought, brought it up to you. I certainly would have never heard of that company unless uh, Robert uh, Lowell had written a poem. That company went out of business in 2001. That company not only cannot keep people safe, it can't even protect itself from economic downturns. Now that's tongue-in-cheek, but this morning I'm appealing to you to stop building a safe. That's my appeal. That's Malachi's appeal. If you look backward and you see that those laws are impossible for you to keep, you're on the right path. You should understand your lack of holiness before a holy God. But then you should look forward and see that God has provided redemption for someone just like you. Stop building a safe. You'll never keep yourself protected from this God. There will be a time of utter destruction. Stop building a safe. Because there's only one mediator between God and man. His only begotten Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And He will keep you safe. Let's pray together, and then we'll confess our faith together. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. That in your great plan, this would be the means by which we would be saved. This was the means by which all those of faith in the Old Testament were saved. Abraham was saved by the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. Abraham looked forward to Jesus. Of course, Abraham sees Jesus very clearly now. But people in Malachi's audience, they too, looked forward in faith in Christ, to Christ Jesus. That perfect sacrifice that would deliver them from the weight of the law and in worshiping you in Christ, and esteeming your name in Christ, they were indeed safe. Thank you, Father, for the protection that comes to us through Christ Jesus. In his name we gather together. Amen. We're going to confess our faith this morning, not from the Apostles' Creed, but we're going to use a scriptural statement, a psalm actually, as we confess faith together. Uh, these are the words of Psalm 23. Christian, what do you believe concerning Jesus Christ? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever.